You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Equities mount to recovery as long bonds continue to sell off, duration risk looms large for some asset allocators, and central banks in the land down under show that they're willing to play ball. While Fed Chair Jay Powell falls suit for all of this and more, I'm joined by Real Vision Managing Editor Ed Harrison, and if we're lucky, we might be joined by Real Vision CEO Rao Pal. Let's get into it. Ed, welcome. How are you doing? Good. Yeah, happy Monday to you. Yeah, it's, it's great to have you. Um, I really want to get your sense of the markets because we've had remarkable price action. You know, last week we had uh, a tantrum in the bond market, perhaps without the taper. Um, today we had a little bit of a recovery um, as equities too uh, staged a recovery and uh, pared back some of their losses from last week. How are you making sense of uh, the turmoil in markets? Yeah, so I think that the equity markets, they had a pretty good run, a very good rally without a, a large correction. They still haven't had a very large correction. And so to a certain degree, you could say that the, they were primed for a sell-off in some capacity. When you combine that with bonds, what happened in the bond market as a primer for that sell-off, then we had a perfect storm where bonds went down and equities went down together. All risk assets went down. Interestingly, by the way, I think you and I, we were talking about this junk spread didn't uh, gap out. Uh, you know, so even though we're talking about uh, a sell-off, it wasn't a sell-off that says that there's a fundamental change in the economy. And so the way I'm looking at it is as the reflationary trade getting uh, ahead of itself, potentially moving into the inflation realm and people becoming a little bit spooked by that and using that as an opportunity to take profits, uh, particularly in the most uh, high-yield the, the, the most uh, high growth beta stocks in, in equities. Yeah, Ed, just uh, building on that point, um, over the past week, we've actually seen bonds sell off more that have uh, a higher credit quality. So it was treasuries that sold off the most, and then uh, investment grade bonds, and then high yield. And I actually have a chart um, of their different returns over the past week. And it's been the long bonds specifically that have uh, sold off the most. Um, but actually, Ed, I want to I want to ask you about the different parts of the yield curve because I you know the long bonds sold off and the the short rates uh, went e even lower. I think as you know there continues to be sort of a cash collateral mismatch. But I want to ask you, Ed, what do you think of that uh, you know tremendous illiquidity in the middle of the curve, the belly of the curve, where there was what? You know, 60, 62 billion dollars worth of seven-year bonds that were sold and not enough buyers. Uh, you know, what what did you make of that action? Is it is it are they is it that they are fearing inflation or that they think that there is opportunity elsewhere in a market that is about to reopen? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's hard to say what the the gist is in terms of what's the overall complexion of many different actors coming to bear. What I can say is that. When you start to look, let's say, at five-year rates, seven-year rates, you're already at a levels where 
the market is much more setting the rate than the Fed in the sense that the Fed really controls the short end of the curve. They control overnight rates. And if they tell you that they're not going to raise rates over the next year, you can be pretty sure that that's going to happen. So, you know, you can go out to two years and it's pretty much the Fed's forward guidance tells you pretty much everything you need to know. The same thing is true in, in other uh, sovereign currency issuers like Australia, uh, like uh, the UK, Japan, etc. But, you know, the further you go out, the more there, there's play in terms of there's a lot more uncertainty about what's going to happen in the future. And I think that the five-year rate, central banks, they are not happy if that rate is going up too quickly and can upset the apple cart. So what we saw last week was the beginning of problems there. Uh, we saw at least three central banks uh, work against it. And it's not just because of the long end of the yield curve, but it's also that belly of the curve that you're talking about. So we saw the uh, RBA, that's the Reserve Bank of Australia. They did some uh, some bond buying. We saw a reiteration of the uh, stance by the Reserve Bank of New Zealand. And we also saw the ECB's Christine Lagarde saying that she was watching the long end of the curve to make sure that things didn't get out of whack. So I would look at, you know, five years out as where these central banks don't want to see any sort of activity really upsetting their their ability to reflate and to stay in control of, of interest rates. Mm, Ed, and can, can you tell me, uh, for the sake of people at home, why is it that as rates rise, that can impose stress on the economy? Uh, why is uh, rate rising something that central bankers fear? Yeah, I mean, there are a number of different uh, factors there. One, I think, is that you have the discount rates, which means that uh, long-lived assets, they're not worth as much because you know the discount for future cash flows are less. But then also you have the substitution effect where, you know, why would I buy X when I can buy Y? We were getting to the point where bonds were starting to become more attractive as a asset class. If you looked at the dividend yield as an example, for the S&P 500, we crossed the Rubicon, where finally we saw interest rates on a nominal level that that were better than the dividend yield for the S&P. So why would you, if you were someone who was trying to get income, uh, get all your income from equities when you can get them from bonds? So there's going to be some substitution. There's going to be some movement out of equities into bonds as a result of that. So you see all these kinds of effects that, that go on. Mm. Um, Ed, so you, you talked about the Reserve uh, Bank of Australia rushing to the defense of their, their yield target. I think they bought $4 billion worth of bonds that were roughly in that 5, 10-year ten 10-year ten range. And similar moves from New Zealand, ECB, just as you said. Uh, yet Fed Chair Jay Powell uh, so far has not made remarks that he will rush to the defense of these, of, uh, these rising yields. In fact, he says that rising yield is good because it means that the bond market's selling off. They're going to rush into risk assets um, because the economy is reopening and, and it's uh, you know a source of tremendous growth. Um, do, do you what do you think of that? And uh, you know do you think Powell ever changes tune and go to yield curve control? What do you, what do you make of it? Well, it all depends on how far up we get in terms of rates. I, I mean, just from the price action, it looks to me. I mean, just going back to the whole interview that I did with Katie Stockton, where she was saying one fourteen twenty five was the resistance. We broke above as soon as we broke above that in two consecutive Fridays, we zoomed up. 
we went intraday to 160 on the 10 year, the US Treasury, and then we backed off. Now we're in the 140 ish range, 145 for the 10 year. Uh, resistance is really at 150. We could be consolidating here. So, really, that's not a level that's going to cause a lot of consternation. If you look up backup of rates in previous cycles, even in the last cycle, you know, we could back up 100 basis points and it wouldn't be a problem. So I, I don't think we're at levels yet where he feels like he has to pull out the yield curve control element. But it was starting to become a little sloppy. Uh, equities were selling off. And if it, it continued, then we would have had something to worry about. But it doesn't seem like that is going to continue. And so there's nothing that Powell really needs to do. So my view is, is, is that He's just like, I'm going to just toe the line. If anything more happens, we'll take a look and see. But, you know, nothing terrible has happened so far. So I'm just I'm not going to change my my stance. Mm. Um, Ed, I, there are a lot of things I want to say to that. Uh, I actually do have to make an announcement, though. Uh, the winner of the golden ticket prize from Friday's cocktail party with Rao and friends is Drum roll, Marco Fraga. Marco wins a 30-minute call with Ral, and uh, Real Vision will be in touch soon to get that set up. Thank you for everyone for taking part, and I hope you had fun. So, uh, Ed, it looks like Marco won the golden ticket, but I think, Ed, it's possible that we actually won the golden ticket as well, um, because I think Ral is coming on this call very soon. Yeah, that would be great. Let's uh, let's bring him in there then. Raul, welcome to the RVDB today. It's a Monday. I'm not normally here on a Monday, but it's good to be here. Yeah. You know, uh, I was talking to Jack just now. Uh, he was picking my brain about what was going on in the markets. A lot of volatility last week. I wanted to get your view because I was talking about, I mean, I obviously look at things from a credit perspective. I'm talking about bonds leading. What, what are you seeing right now? I think you're right. Bonds are leading. I think there's a couple of things going on. One is there's that key trend line, the, the S&P keeps bouncing off. It's also a moving average, I think. And that's the point where we kind of know that this massively overpositioned market could unravel if it breaks. And every time it gets there, it doesn't break. So we've been kind of fighting with this for a while. And I've just written Global Macro Investor this weekend talking about that risk. The risk hasn't gone away. The speculative positioning is massive. And look like bonds were tapping the equity market on the shoulder saying, maybe getting a little bit overexcited here, guys. Okay. Interesting. And that mechanism is still there. The other one people aren't talking about is the dollar. We need to be careful the dollar doesn't go up too fast, because if it does, that's the other one that can knock the equity market over. But what we do know is things haven't changed with the central bank, because we're kind of getting the idea, we've seen it out of Australia today, which is that the central banks are going to start pegging the yield curves. This is very early in the cycle to be doing that, but they're going to tell you Yield curves, are, uh, yield curves are not going up and the long end is not going up because we cannot snuff out this recovery because if financial conditions tighten, it's game over. So I think we're going to start to see more noises. The ECB's implicitly doing it. The Australians are explicitly doing it. And my guess is others are going to do a mix of the two. So let's wait and see. We've got a bunch of Fed speakers this week. Going to be really interesting. Now, what does it mean if they do? What it means is the Fed is there saying, I'll buy any bonds at, let's say, 140 basis points or whatever number they choose. So if that's the case, their balance sheet's going to go this. Also, the sellers of bonds are going to be releasing cash 
So if you're an insurance company or a pension plan, you've now released cash, or if you're a bank, where does that cash go? Well, guess what? It goes back into the equity market again, and we keep recycling this bloody quantitative easing loop of credit pushing, you know, the, the credit markets then via the Fed pushing asset prices higher and higher and higher. So look, I think that's the game we're in. There is a break point. Something can happen where it could be the dollar when everyone's looking at rates, and it could be the dollar. So everyone needs to keep their eye on all of these. The, those are the three things. Yes, there's geopolitics. I t- tend to discount them. It's the dollar, it's bonds, it's equities. What's the movement of all of those three? And we'll see how it plays out. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah, good, good framework. And, and Jack, I know you had a question for uh, Rao, not related to rates and equities, but uh, commodities more so and emerging markets. Definitely. Well, um, you know, thanks, Ralph, for indulging us for talking about the intraday uh, moves in, in the bonds. But I know, you know, that's not always something uh, that you're following closely. You tend to have a longer uh, time horizon. And I think uh, someone else who has a very long time horizon is Jim Rogers. And uh, you had an interview with him, which I learned a lot from. So I'd love it if, you know, Ralph, you could share some of the, the key learnings that you had um, in that interview, whether it's on gold, silver, yeah. 1987. Um, yeah, there's, there's just so much there. There was. And Jim always has a lot of experience, a lot of history, and he's a great communicator. So it's always a pleasure to catch up with him. Um, Jim, what I want to really pick Jim's mind on is the risks of markets. Now, as we know, Jim has been for a long time somebody who's bearish on developed markets. So I wanted to see his narrative on that. And that narrative is still there. He's not a big fan of it. Now, that bet overall has not been a bet that's played off well because developed markets have so outperformed. That doesn't mean you can't make money in emerging markets. And, you know, Jim and I talked a lot about India, China, which everybody's underweight. And because of the previous uh, government in the United States, the rhetoric was ratcheted up to 11. So that kept a lot of investors away. So Jim's kind of saying, well, nobody's really invested. Everyone's underinvested. We're seeing just the MSCI bond flows alone into China causing the currency to rise. So is there a potential that that happens? Yeah, I think Jim's probably right. Um, He's also looking at Russia. And Russia's very interesting because it's a market that many people I know, many macro guys like. Because when the cycle turns and the commodity markets do well and the dollar is not as strong, Russia does extremely well. Now, Russia's mainly de-dollarized right now which is interesting in itself. But if commodities go up, and Russia basically owns more commodities than the rest of the world put together. I mean, that's the magnitude of what Russia owns. Um, So it does well. Um, And so I think Jim's right to start looking at that. Now, the question is, is whether Jim's right about commodities. They've obviously been going up, so that's great. Where are we in the commodity cycle? Are we in a super cycle? Is this just a supply disruption part of the cycle? You know, where is the demand going to come from? That's not clear to me yet. It's not clear to me until we see what these monetary fiscal stimulus blends end up being, the big ESG, green deals. That's what's going to give us that inkling. You know, is that copper heavy or is that going to be 
lithium heavy. You know, I don't know what commodities to invest in right now. So I'm, I know commodities are going up. Could they be part of the super cycle? They've, you know, the, I look at the 10 year rate of change and they bottomed out or they always bottom out. Um, I think it'll come in fits and starts, I think is the, is the point. But Jim is, you know, very interested there. You know, I even asked him about Bitcoin and he kind of warms to it, but he's like, he still understands gold. Well, Raul, you can be very convincing. So I, I think if anyone could uh, uh, try and get Jim Rogers into Bitcoin, uh, it could be you. You know, we actually had, uh, uh, what's his name? Kevin O'Leary, uh, a fellow Shark Tank. Uh, he's recently talked to Mark Cuban. He actually uh, allegedly has 3% of his uh, portfolio in Bitcoin, which and, he had previously, uh, you know, spoken and uh, Jeff with great. Jeff Gunlack, last time I caught up with Jeff. Oh, wow. Jeffrey Gunlack. Jeffrey was like, no, I kind of comfortable with gold. Next minute, he's tweeting about Bitcoin. We've just seen Dan Loeb today mm -hmm. tweeting about Bitcoin as well. Uh, you know, Citibank writing like 138-page research on it. Fascinating world, right? It's moving faster than any of us can catch up with. And, you know, meanwhile, Bitcoin, you know, has been correcting, as everybody's aware, and I know a lot of people are invested. You need to expect 30 to 40% corrections. We had one of those. It's still a bit mild. Maybe there's more to come on the downside, but these are normal. And uh, today's a very strong day for crypto. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, before you go, let me ask you about that, because uh, it does look like the price action is very positive because I was looking at the numbers, you know, on Sunday, uh, we were down like 7% and then suddenly it comes roaring back and then it's way to the upside. That's why it's the most fun market in the world. I mean, I don't trade it, but, you know, I was speaking to a friend of mine. In fact, he's been on um, uh, Real Vision a lot. Uh, Chris Sullivan from Hyperion Maximus. Decimus? Not sure. Uh, basically a crypto hedge fund. Um, and, you know, he's pretty experienced in the space. And he's like, long may this volatility continue. I mean, those crypto hedge funds, particularly algos like him, they make a fortune in this market. You know, most normal people aren't really used to trading markets this volatile. But the old commodity hands and the new crypto hedge funds are just having a field day. Oh, yeah. I, I can imagine, Raul, because it's hedge funds with the quantitative sophistication of, of the present day um, when, you know, the, the Bitcoin and the crypto markets are nations. So they have these opportunities that have long been uh, uh, um, arbitraged out of traditional markets. Yeah, exactly. Hyperion Decimus is the name. But yes, you know, and I spoke today on the crypto platform uh, uh, to Jeff Dorman, um, Ari Paul and Joey Krug all investing in this space, all running hedge funds in this space, all with different strategies, the sheer alpha in the space I've never seen in my entire career. It's not even the alpha of the glory days of the 80s in hedge funds when George Soros was making 30, 40, 50% a year. These guys are knocking the ball out of the park with 200, 300% a year returns. It's amazing. Now, those returns won't be stable. They will have, you know, down large downdrafts as well but the, the the alpha in the space is just sucking everybody in because meanwhile bond yields are pegged currencies are basically pegged where do you make money mm -hmm. <laughs> the, uh, death, the death of macro as i call that <laughs> wow uh, uh rather there's one more moment from your your interview with jim which is where you know you talked to, to felix zuloff about 1987 he was uh thought that there are a lot of parallels to the present day you asked that of Jim Rogers, and he had a very funny answer. He actually said, oh, yeah, I was short uh, the market prior to 1987, and Black Monday was on my birthday. And that, that was one of my all-time favorite Real Vision moments. <laughs> yeah, I didn't realize that. I hadn't heard that story before. But, yes, look, there are a lot of 1987 parallels. You know, 
Um, Felix's point was, you know, I was explaining and I've explained to people there's a risk right now because of the setup. Again, it's just bounce off that risk thing. Maybe the risk stops. Maybe the Fed stopped the yield curve rising. That will reduce the risk again. Felix's view is it's probably coming later in the year. Uh, and that would not be an economic event. It's just a markets event just because everybody is positioned so one way. So we, you, you need to be careful of it. But for me, I'm just using that as an opportunity to say, how can I get long emerging markets? How can I buy the things that I really want to buy? Um, you know, how can I get hold of Reliance Industries in India that keeps going up in a straight line or stuff like that? You know, when can I feel comfortable? Maybe this will bring it. We'll have to wait and see. Yeah, Excellent. Ralph, always uh, great getting your thoughts. Um, I know uh, you've been a regular contributor to the daily briefing on Friday. Uh, hopefully, you know, perhaps this could be good. Uh, uh, a new trend of you know five ten minute uh, appearance by the Real Vision CEO on the daily briefing on, on one of the weekdays. I'm always happy. Obviously, I'm here to support Real Vision. I do what you need. <laughs> Thanks, Real Vision. I like that. <laughs> Thanks All so right. much, Al. Thanks, guys. Thank Ed and I are going to geek out on Bob's now. Talk soon. Wow, uh, great to have Raoul, right? <laughs> yeah, one hundred percent. And you know, I think it was interesting when he was talking about uh, Felix Zuloff. That was the last comment that he, he made. I was thinking about that. Uh, what I'm thinking about is uh, how cycles in the market or downdrafts dovetail or don't with recessions. And it sounds like you know a lot of people are positioned on one side. If you think 1987 or a big downdraft doesn't necessarily mean that the economy has to tank or that it uh you know it's because the economy is about to tank it just means that you know this is a a, a, a massive selling uh it'll be interesting to see how that works out absolutely you don't need the economy to tank for the market to tank and likewise you don't need the market to tank for the economy to tank um you know i think this is so, somewhat of a gilded recession that we've had over the past year where the the you know quarter over quarter, quarter growth is uh, a pop Maybe I'm being a little dramatic, but the market, you know, keeps on chugging, chugging along. Uh, Ed, I want to ask you about duration because I know this is something you're a bond guy. You've had your, your, uh, you know, eye on this for a long time. David Rosenberg's talked about this. Uh, basically, when yields were so low, uh, bond market managers um, went out further on the risk curve, but they also went out further on the yield curve in terms of just duration. So they were buying, you know, Apple bonds that matured in 2061. Um, I, and, and the ultimate example of that is the 100-year bond from Austria. Um, how are you thinking about how duration has impacted uh, these asset classes? And, I, and I'm thinking of you know uh, treasuries, but also investment grade and high yield. Yeah, it is interesting. I think uh, it's all, it's about reinvestment risk to a certain degree. You know, a lot of people they talk about how could you invest in Argentina for a hundred years? That's that's ridiculous. You know, you know they're going to default. But you know, when you look at the uh, where the the cash flows are coming, so much of the cash flow is coming from the coupons in the in the beginning that really duration wise it may not be as uh, as as terrible as you think. You're not really investing for a hundred years. So uh, what do I think right now? I'm thinking about uh, the correlation between equities and bonds in terms of if we reach the end of the cycle. And then we uh, we start to rise again. What does that mean for equities? I think that it uh, if you look at thirty year strips, they've outperformed the equity markets over this uh, entire bull market cycle. So if 
you take that and you look at it from the other side, you see rates going up. I still feel as if uh, you know that's going to be a headwind for equities. So to the degree that uh, we're near the bottom of the cycle uh, and we start to rise, that that's going to uh, to keep your return somewhat capped uh, over the next five, seven, ten years. That that's how I'm thinking about it. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Mm, that's interesting. Um, see, uh, what, what you said uh, about the duration and reinvestment risk, that makes me think about the duration um, that is different across the fixed, fixed income spectrum. For, so I think the duration of the average duration of the U.S. investment grade market is about seven, eight years, whereas for five, uh, whereas for high yield, it's only uh, it's only five and a half. So uh, the, the high yield market is obviously has higher, greater credit risk, but it has less uh, interest rate risk. And of course, the ultimate interest rate risk is those is those 30 year bonds. Um, and that's why, you know, I, I think I talked about this on, on Friday was that, you know, LQD, the, the uh, ETF of investment grade credit uh, now has a short interest that, um, you know, is almost up to 20%. So, you know, I'm hearing what Ral is talking about how there's a record, uh, you know, the, the market maker, the speculative positions are, are, are record short bonds, uh, you know, tre- short treasury bonds. Now I'm looking at Wow, investment they're shorting investment grade bonds too, because it's not just credit risk um, that they're thinking about. They're thinking about interest rate risk too. Um, but Ed, you mentioned something which is the correlation between equities and um and, and the treasury market. And I think, you know, if you're a casual observer of the market and you'll see the stocks are up, uh, that generally means that you'll, you'll and you ch- and then you check the bonds, you'll generally see that bonds sold off. Likewise, uh, the stock market uh you know, it, it it collapsed today. Oh, bond uh, bond yields fell as well, meaning the bonds rallied. So they they have their inversely correlated typically. But what we saw last week was that the long bonds sold off, and then the belly of the curve. You know, the carnage there uh, was extreme, as you know. Um, but then uh, the money it didn't flow into stocks. Uh, it it just stayed on the sidelines, and uh, the you know the stocks they declined too. So what do you make of the fact that stocks and bonds sold off last week? Is that you know, is that um, uh, significant or am I, am I just seeing things? You know, I'm looking at it in terms of flow versus fundamentals in that maybe over a shorter period of time, there's a flow effect where you're you're uh, redistributing your money, you're reallocating your assets. But if you think about why equities went up over the duration of the uh, cratering of yields over this past cycle, it it seems like equities are going up in line with bonds. You know, bond prices are going up, bond yields are going down, so equity prices are going up as well. So I think that from a fundamental perspective, the, the opposite is true. That's why there's the headwind. So I think that from a fundamental perspective, the action that we saw, because it was very compressed in time, is exactly what happens over a longer period of time. So we saw what is a, the fundamental action in a compressed period of time because uh, things were zooming up. But over the longer period of time, if you get from 0.5% and you go up to 3.5% on the long bond, that's going to compress your potential returns in your equity portfolio because you know your duration 
uh, is is a problem. Mm, right. Uh, and I just I, and I just want to quickly correct myself. I said that the average duration for U.S. high yield was five and a half years. It's actually three and a half years. I misread that uh, on my note. But Ed, as we close, um, what uh, you know in can can you uh, succinctly describe your framework for what you think is going to happen? Because last year, you know, last week we had that bloodbath in the belly of the curve, that seven year, the five to 10 range. Um, I think next week it's 10 year bonds that are on sale. That's March 10th and March 11th, the 30s are going on sale. We're having a lot of supply coming to the market. Um, do you think that the marginal buyer is going to be there? Yeah, I think that this uh, we have attested this 150 level. I really do now believe that the 150 level is a, a point of resistance and that uh, it's getting over that hump for the 10 year at 150 that is going to galvanize the market to move higher. Uh, we fell below that. We're still below that right now as we're taping this. But if we get above that and then consolidate over a period of time, let, let's give it the two consecutive Fridays close, then I think uh, you know the, the next level up is 175, maybe even 2%. And it's at that point that you might see the Fed change their tune. Anything that's close to 2%, you know, coming all the way back from 50 basis points or even, you know, think about 90 basis points at the beginning of the year, that's a considerable move. I think that's enough that it will draw the Fed to, you know, not just jawbone, but to uh, talk about uh, action that they're going to take. Mm -hmm. And uh, Ed, do you think that that's, that's really interesting what you said? Do you think that um, you know, before the Fed steps in, if rates are so high, will that Drag down um, the big, growthy, high-flying tech names. You know the uh, the uh, the gravity metaphor because they've been on Mars for so long. The metaphor that people in the comments seem to like. Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, your guess is as good as mine because we've been talking about this, you and I, and other people on the RVDB for a, a while, and, and it crystallized. It came to fruition. We've been saying that it's about the pace of the the, the move up as well as the level. And what we saw is that the pace of the move up last week was so abrupt that it destabilized equities. So I think that that's kind of the, how I'm looking at it. I don't have a specific level in mind. Uh, it, it's hard to say, but I, I think that if we see something like we saw that pace, uh, it, it, we're gonna get some more volatility. Mm, right. Uh, Ed, uh, we're going to have to leave it there. I, I have a, a lot more questions for you because I think you make such compelling arguments for why rates will probably continue to rise in the short term. Um, I'm just I'm just thinking that, you know, how could I how I'm, it's hard for me to imagine a scenario where that happens, where rates rise and tech doesn't sort of take it on the chin like it is last week. But, you know, maybe I'm just uh, maybe I'm just looking at things you know through a simple lens. Well, let me let me uh, finish it off by saying that I, I'm still thinking about Hari Krishnan's uh, uh, his mode of saying buy protection when it's cheap. And when you talked about everyone uh, getting into LQD and shorting LQD, to me that tells me that that's a crowded trade. That it's the opposite trade that is more interesting. You know, I always talk about the crash up in yields and the crash down. So when you talk about uh, tech, a, a tech wreck, that's sort of on my mind is, is, is that now we, we have to be thinking about positioning on the other way because this yeah. trade could get crowded at some point. And if it is, then 
it will be cheaper to buy protection on the other side. Absolutely. Um, and a question of whether you're right or I'm right or, or what happens with tech, it all, whether it's a good trade to, to buy, say, buy a put option on, on a, 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 a basket of growth names or a particular individual single name, that all depends on the price you're getting, which is the, the implied volatility. Um, so yeah, oh, as always, uh, do, your, do your own homework before taking a position. Thanks, Ed. It's been great, as always. Oh, oh yeah, you bet, Jack. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.